Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you this uh, beautiful Sunday morning in worship. Uh, as Nate said, uh, I'm not Nate. Uh, Nate is usually the pastor here this morning. I'm Wayne Brown. I'm just one of the members here. Uh, so it's good to come up and share the word uh, to bring you what God has given me in the last few weeks if I've looked at this. We'll be in uh, Luke 17, looking at verses 7 to 10 this morning. Uh, 7 through 10, we will definitely reference back in verses 1 through 6, because as we're going to see, this, this little parable in 7 through 10 is a direct response to what happened with the disciples in 1 through 6. And that's a little bit of background we want to look at. If you happen to have one of our pew Bibles, the little blue ones, it's page 971. That would help you kind of track along with us if you wanted. Nate last week preached and did a phenomenal job on the beginning of this passage. He really stuck a lot to verses 1 through 4, talking about caring for each other's souls, caring for our brothers and sisters in Christ. He didn't really hit on 5 and 6 a lot, and that's nice because that is a transitional point. Now, just for the record, when you go and you look at some of the commentators, some of them break this thing into three completely distinct parts and say they're not interrelated. I don't buy that. I don't think Nate does as well. Some of them will take one through six as one part and say seven through ten is just another story Jesus decided to tell for no reason. Well, God doesn't do anything for no reason. I think what I'm going to try and show you here, or as my seminary professors like to say, I'd like to suggest... That means you better pay attention, right? That 7 through 10 is a direct response to what the disciples had to say in verses 5 and 6 from the teaching in 1 and 4. And that's a whole kind of numerology thing. We won't get into that anymore. You see what happened in 1 and 4? Jesus commands, and remember, an imperative is a command, commands the disciples to approach their brothers and sisters in Christ with love and humility, calling them back to repentance. And when they repent, if we give them, that's the imperative. We should always... Have forgiveness on our hearts for other people. Always extend the grace of God. The indicative is in verse 4, no matter how many times they come to you, you're to come and forgive them. I don't care if it's a hundred times a day, if it's a hundred times an hour, if someone comes to you, help restore them. You are spiritual. Then you get into 6. And of course the disciples being so mature in their faith go, of course we'll do that. Jesus, that's exactly what we want to do. No. What do they say? Oh, increase our faith. They give an excuse, in my opinion. But that's what we're going to look at. So Jesus is going to respond in verses 7 through 10. But before we get there, before we get there, as I was studying through this, this reminded me of a story in my life about my grandson. Now, my grandson's name is Troy. Back when he was around five or six, he would come and spend the weekends with us on occasion. And he has these big, long, curly eyelashes the women just love. And he has this charming little smile. My wife says all our browns are charmers. And he had this T-shirt on, right? It would say, chick magnet. I kid you not. And he was proud of that, chick magnet. So when I'd pick him up and we'd go on Saturday morning, we'd go to Kroger or we'd go to Walmart, we'd cruise by the bakery. 
Oh, and he'd turn and he'd smile and bat those eyelashes. And they'd go, oh, isn't he so cute? And he'd give it a cookie. I'd look and I'd turn and bat my eyelashes. And they'd turn away in disgust. It wasn't working for me. I don't know what happened there. But right, he's just this adorable little kid. One day he comes for the weekend, or on weekend he comes. We're getting ready on Saturday morning. The company I worked for at the time is doing a company picnic. We're going to go to like one of those Malibu raceways where they got go-karts, right? And they got mini golf and all those good things. They're paying for it and they're feeding us. So yeah, we're going to go. Now, I'm in the master bath getting ready with the dog next to me thinking she's going to go. Luna's got another thing coming, but she's sticking like glue because if you've got a dog, they don't want you to go anywhere without them. Ooh, it could be ice cream or something, you know? Troy is in the hall bath with Grandmother. I'm Pop-Pop. She gets this grandiose name of Grandmother. And they're chittering back and forth. And it's a good morning. It's a Chamber of Commerce day. Blue skies. The temperatures are perfect. So I get done, and I turn off the light, and I'm walking along, and Luna's just sticking by me. I'm going, not today. Not today. So I'm coming to the threshold of the door to come out of the bedroom and get ready with the other two. And I hear grandmother say to Mr. Curly Eyelash, Charming Smile Chick Magnet, go do such and such. It was a command, or as we like to talk about, an imperative in scripture. Go do such and such. Now, it wasn't over and above his ability or skill. You know, go pick up your shoes or whatever. I mean, he's five or six. We didn't give him big, hard things to do. What does he do? In all his charmingness, he goes, you can't tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me. Well, I'm about to cross the threshold of the door. I stop mid-stride, look at Luna. She flops her ears down, tucks her tail, runs in her sleeping crate, and I back up. So I'm not getting in the middle of this one, right? Well, he learned that day that, yes, I am the boss of you. And yet no child was harmed in this memory either, so don't think it was bad. But he did get a lesson. I want to bring that up and keep that in mind as we look at the response of the disciples. They knew it was about faith to forgive somebody. So instead of just agreeing, they're like, ooh, increase our faith. Troy says, you're not the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do. Keep that in mind as we unpack this. We're going to look at these four verses, 7 through 10, in two different parts. The first part, we'll look at 7, 8, and 9. And then 10 will be the answer. We're going to find out what Jesus has to say. Let's read those together, and then we'll pray, and then we'll see what God has to say. Verse 7, starting from the ESV. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, Oh, come at once, recline at the table. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly, and then serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Father, we thank you for your word, for the hope we have in Christ. Your word is all about Jesus. It points to the glorification of your son who hung on a cross for our sins and died. Gave up his life for those that deserved death and hell. But yet you give us freedom. May your word not return void. In Christ we pray. Amen. All right, verses 7, 8, and 9. Let's jump into this. It's basically three rhetorical questions, or as I like to put it, no, yes, no. 
Take a look at that first one again. Will any of you have, who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's coming from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Well, Jesus starts his parable with a look at daily life in first century Palestine. And what he's doing is he's taking the disciples who are under authority of Christ and he's putting them in the position of the master or authority. He's kind of saying, okay, let me ask you a couple of questions, guys. If your faith is that bad, you know, he tells them your faith only needs to be minuscule. But he says, let's take a look at this. Let's put you in the wheelhouse, if you will. Now, I want to touch on this briefly, but it's very important. Jesus is in no way condoning slavery. Because when you look at this, it says, you who has a servant. We're going to talk about that in a minute. I just think it's very key. There's no way are we condoning slavery or enslaving anybody for any reason, for anything. This is daily life in Palestine. God always seems to work in culture and change culture from the inside out, which takes time. Moving on from that, I thought that was very important, though. So the answer to the first question is an affirmative no. If you're a master and you have a servant, you're not going to have him come in from the field and go, oh, you look hot and sweaty. Why don't you sit down? Let me take care of you. Let me do something nice for you. No, you're going to expect it to come in and do your job. And the master's going to give him a directive. And it's an imperative. It's a command. So he's putting the apostles in this thing. He says, now, if you had a servant doing their job and he comes in from the field, would you just start waiting on him? Of course you're not going to do that. Now, the servant here, uh, you've got to look at this, is dulios. It's properly someone who belongs to another, a bond slave without any ownership rights of their own. That's a pretty scary thing. They are sold out to their master no matter what. They have no rights. They, have no, they can't go to the union. They can't call up the president. They can't do anything except submit. Interestingly, though, and I love this in the New Testament, it's used with the highest dignity in the New Testament, namely of believers who willingly live under Christ's authority as, he, as his devoted followers. Don't miss that part. Who willingly live under Christ's authority. That's those who, us who have surrendered to the lordship of Christ. Those who have given up our previous life, and trust me, mine was not worth anything. But we have decided, I will willingly serve the king of kings and lord of lords. So this is what Jesus is setting up. And the apostles know this. They know the language. This is daily life. It's what they speak to one another. So he says, if you had a servant, what would you do? And of course, no, they're not going to do that. Mark 10, 45, if we can get that. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. Read along with me. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The beautiful part of that the one who came to serve, and I like the way it came, is about serving someone at the table. It fits beautifully right in this scripture. Christ came to serve us through his death, burial, and resurrection. He came to serve us that deserved nothing and gave us everything. Willingly submitting to Father God and his plan of pain and torture on a Roman cross. So we can have freedom. So we can have salvation. So we can willingly submit back to him. Now, right now, the apostles are probably thinking pretty good because they're thinking, Ooh, I'm on the master side of things. But it's going to change in a little bit. One other thing you see here, folks. 
Servants knew their place in society and within their master. In this, you see that they're out plowing or keeping the sheep. And when he's come in from the field, you're going to say to him, come at once and recline at the table. This servant knows there's a whole lot going on. And just because I've completed this task doesn't mean I go to get over here and sit down and relax. I know there's more things that have to be done. The kingdom's constantly growing. The kingdom is ever, ever expanding. And there's always more to be done. So this servant, this theoretical servant, knows what's happening. So he plans his day accordingly. There's no sloughing off, if you will, for lack of a better term. So we get the first no out of the way. Then he comes in and he gives him another question, or secondly, an answer within a question. In verse 8, will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? And I like the way the new, the new Living Translation says, well, duh, yeah. Just a colloquial, he says, yeah, that's the answer. Now the, no, the apostles have got to be thinking, yeah, yeah, that's right. Now we, of course, we're new. And, but the relationship never changes here. This is all a theory he's putting up in front of them. He's telling the apostles, if you had a slave, if you had a servant, if this is the way it was, the master, the, the servant always serves the master. Isn't it nice when you can be in the power, in the seat, when you can be the authority figure? That's what Christ is telling us. This is what the authority figure can do. This is what the master can do. The servant always serves the master first. I want to briefly step out of this for a second about Bible study. When we come to passages within the scripture, especially ones that are challenging, we need to be cautious that our past does not color how we approach the scripture. In other words, as I gave my testimony a few weeks back, almost 50 years old before I came to Christ, I had a pretty rough life. 99% of it's self-inflicted. But the way I was back then, it makes me try and grasp on and control things a bit too much nowadays because my life was completely out of control. So if you've got something in your past you're dragging around like a steamer trunk, it will color the way you approach the Word of God if we don't make a concerted effort to push that to the side and try and find out what is God trying to say. I've tried to do that here to the best of my ability. So track on with me because this gets a little bit tough after a while. So Jesus says, will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink. That relationship's never going to change. You see, when people figure out the answer themselves, they can more readily accept what's being taught. And that's what Jesus is doing here. You see, in my past, I now am very direct about how I teach, and it's not always good. It's not always the best way. Ask Leah. She'll tell you. Leah's my beautiful stepdaughter. I love her dearly. But I'm very hard and direct on myself, and I unfortunately push that on her. Well, her grandfather gives her theories and gives her stories and stuff, and she figures out the answer herself. So when the same, the same answer is gotten, it's gotten with a way of going, yeah. That's what Jesus is doing here. He draws us into the scriptures. And he says, let me tell you a story. 
We all tell stories, don't we? I told a story about my grandson. We've all got a past, a history, things that have happened. Any fishermen in the, in the room? Oh, yeah, y'all don't want to say nothing now. Yeah, yeah, that perch that was this big got this big one. Yeah, by the end of the story, we all kind of embellish and tell stories. And that's what it's about. Jesus draws it into the story, the word of God, the story of history, the story of salvation, the story of God's creation, the story of everything he wants to do. And he says to us, come on in. Let me take you on a journey. In Matthew 13, 10 and 11, the disciples came to him and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Them being Israel. And he said to them, to you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. If you're in Christ and the spirit indwells you, you have the power to understand the word of God. But he speaks through these little parables. And that's what this is, is a short little parable or a story. So he says, in seven, if you have a servant plowing your keeping his sheep, you're not going to serve him. No. Would you not rather he would come in and serve you? Of course. But then we get to the third question or the last or another no, which is in verse 9. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Well, gosh, now the apostles have got to be going, no, you just tell that little fella to do what he's supposed to do. That's what you do as the master. You see, there's more than just saying thank you or being kind. The literal translation is, does he have favor for his slave? Now, this means, does he put him up on a pedestal? Does he hold him up in regard and high regard? Now, I don't know about you, but do you thank people during the day for serving you? Like you go to the gas station? I always try and find out their name if they've got it on there and say, hey, Demetrius, thanks for being here, but I appreciate it. Usually it's like, well, it's my job. Yeah, but I couldn't get my coffee if you weren't here. Don't tell my wife we sometimes get donuts too, you know. Right? You go and your server brings you food. And whatever her or his name is, thank you for bringing that. Thank you for taking care of me. Being kind to one another is nice. You thank your kids for doing what they're supposed to do. You thank your spouse for whatever she or he does for you. Thanking people is not a problem. In fact, that's a privilege in Christ and something we should exercise on a regular basis. It's a little bit more. This, in fact, this is a whole lot more than just saying thanks a lot. You see, in the Greco-Roman religion assumptions, it was that as one served a certain God, then the God was expected to reward the one who served. So in essence, when Jesus tells the disciples, the apostles, you must forgive, and they say, increase our faith, he's saying, you must forgive, and they're going, well, what are you going to do for me if I do? Now, in, their, in Troy's little nuance, when he's five or six, he didn't have the way to, to kind of talk around things, so he blatantly comes out and says what I think the apostles are saying. You can't tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me. They just were old enough, and they could nuance it better. not much different today, is it? Well, God, I, I worked in the nursery. You owe me something. I worked with the toddlers. You really owe me something. I worked with youth. <laughs> we really need to talk about this. We treat God like a cosmic vending machine sometimes. I plugged in seven prayers. Well, where's my gift? I put in my four quarters and pushed in the thing. What am I getting out of this? That's how the apostles were approaching this earlier. 
remember, back in verse 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him, is an imperative. That's a command. In 4, and if he sins against you seven times and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. That's an indicative. The imperative is you must forgive him. The indicative is every single time he comes to you in repentance. Help him. Serve somebody. Say you're sorry. How many in this room have been forgiven? You don't have to raise your hand. You know in your heart. Isn't it great? You fall on your face and call God. Oh, forgive me. A sinner. And Jesus freely forgives you from the shed blood on the cross of Calvary. Oh yeah, but when your brother comes up to you and he's made a mistake again and you're like, man, dude, get your stuff together. It's always nice to receive grace, isn't it? To just grab your arms around it and say, thank you, Jesus. Oh boy, when someone comes up to you and you've got to dish it back out, it gets a little bit tough, doesn't it? It does for me. It does for me. Don't think us preachers only get to come up here and hammer on this stuff 30, 40 minutes on a Sunday morning. I've been looking at this passage for several weeks, and every time I open my computer, every time I look at another commentary, every time God and I discuss this, this I live with just to prepare to come up here for 30 or 40 minutes. The same with Nate, the same with every preacher. It's not like we can just come up here and hammer on this and think that we're talking to you. God has been speaking to our hearts for weeks on end. Don't miss that part. So we're in the same boat. Track along with me as we try and finish this up. Verse 10, the truth delivered. He flips the script, Jesus does, immediately. So you also. When you have done all you were commanded, say, we're unworthy servants and we have done nothing but what was our duty. Ouch. All of a sudden, after the disciples have already figured out the answer, Jesus delivers the real truth of the passage. That being, I'm God and have authority over you, period. And the authority of Christ is a huge theme throughout Scripture. Why did we open up with Matthew 28, 18? For all authority has been given unto me. Sometimes... I don't know about you, but I can get awfully familiar with God. Do you do that sometimes with friends or your spouse, maybe? You get a little too familiar and you get a little too flippant with your answers and you just think, I know you're good enough, I can kind of just gloss over this. Jesus flips it back around and says, so you also. He just takes them out of the position of master and puts them back in the place of a servant. When you have done all you were commanded say we are unworthy servants and only done what we are supposed to. Now, don't we all bristle a little bit at the authority in our lives? Now, be honest here. Don't we all just kind of buck up against it? The boss tells you, Bob, you've got to get in there and take care of the situation. Don't go home until it's done. We all have some kind of authority in our lives. It could be a parent. It could be an uncle. It could be a prankster. It could be that guy with the lights that swing around on the top of his car. Mr. Brown, here's your ticket for 75 and a 55. Yeah, I wish I made that up, huh? We all have authority. And we all kind of push back against it sometimes. Because, honestly, who likes to be told what to do? But there are times in our Christian walk when we step out of line that God has to get a little authoritative with us. Now, now track with me a little bit. How many 
pictures of Jesus have you seen clearing the temple? We paint this picture of this, oh, it's from Todd Agnew's song. Curly brown hair and pretty blue eyes and clear complexion, it calls him. That's how we paint him in our life. He cuddles little sheep and holds little babies, and he's this meek and mild little milk toast, wishy-washy Jesus. That's not the Jesus I see in Scripture. That's not the Christ of authority here. When he went in the temple that day and they're selling sheep and doves and all this and they're doing this money changing right in the court of Gentiles and he says this is going to be a house of prayer for the nations. He didn't just have a, a bullwhip wrapped around his hip and just like in Rawhide on Saturday morning. He went away and if you read it properly, he was gone for a day and came back because his anger flared so much for the word of God and what they were doing to the temple and holding people away from the word of God. Our Jesus, even my Jesus, he's a pretty rough dude. Coming back as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's not coming back as a little crying baby in a manger. He's coming back to conquer. Amen. And he will crush everyone with the rod of his mouth, the word of God that we hold dear. I mean, we never forget that. Sometimes we paint Jesus as a little too light and a little too insipid and a little too weak. We need to be cautious. We try and barter with him. In fact, if you think back to Luke 6 6 with me. These are the words of Christ. Why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? And that's from the New Living Translation. I like that. Why do you call me Lord and then sit there or do this and not do that? So when you have done all you were commanded, say, we're unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. He's hitting the disciples, the apostles with this. Why do you call me Lord and then not follow through with my commands? The point is Jesus commanded us to follow him, period. No questions asked except maybe, what's next? But here's the application part I want to get to. Why? Is there a good reason for doing what the God of all eternity says to do? I come up with three reasons I want to discuss with you briefly this morning as we come towards a close. Rewards. Scripture commands us, it's okay to get rewards. We're going to get rewarded for the good works we do down here within the Spirit and what God tells us to do. Store for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't deceive. Thieves can't steal, right? We're commanded. But if you serve just out of reward, I fear we can get to a place of self-centeredness and ego. Now, if we're getting a mansion or a pup tent, I really don't care. I think the psalm says, I'd just soon be a doorman in the court of my God than to, I'd rather do that than have a mansion. And it's not about the rewards that we're going to get. It's really about the service that we do. Christ says, if even you give the cold cup of water to one of these, you've done that for me. So rewards are never going to fulfill. While they're, they're in scripture, I'm not putting it down. I don't think that's the best thing. What about duty? Duty is always a good one, right? Unless you're in the service, I think duty can get a little bad even then. How about this, fellas? Fifteenth year that you've known your wife, you come home with a birthday gift, and you go, here, honey. She goes, oh, thanks. And you go, oh, just do what I'm supposed to do. We have a spare room if you really need to come over and chill for a couple of days, because if you try that one, I'm telling you, you're going to need to think twice about that. See, I came up with a little equation. Duty can lead to drudgery, which can lead to despair, which can lead to delinquency. If you serve just out of duty, 
Next thing you're going to do is go, I can't do this anymore. Why do we go on vacation? You work 40, 50, 60 hours, maybe more a week. Maybe you finally get to that point, I've got to get away from that job, I can't take it anymore. So you take off to the beach for a week, or you go to the mountains, or whatever you do for vacation. Because duty can get worrying. It can just wear you out. Do we serve because of duty in a way? Yeah, Christ commands it. But there's more. There's more. What about love? What about love? A question I proposed to you this morning. What is God's overarching personal or personality trait or attribute? What, if you think of God, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Love. 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 Track along with me. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this than one lay down his life for his own friends. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Psalm 118, oh give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. And the psalm ends at verse 29 with a repeat of one, oh give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. Love. Why do we serve? Because we love. Because Christ poured out his love into our hearts. Because we're indwelt with the spirit of him who gave up his life on Calvary for those that deserve nothing. In the parable, Jesus says the servants are unworthy. That doesn't mean you don't have value. It just means you don't bring him to the table. It's kind of like this. I wouldn't buy the Mona Lisa for a dollar. I think it's a hideous painting. But my granddaughter, who's 12 years old, is a freehand artist. Is amazing. That gets tacked on the wall because that has value to me. God looks at you and says, it's not so much that you don't have value. You just don't bring anything to the table. Because we have nothing to offer God. But he offers us everything through his great, unfailing, steadfast love. How long has it been since you've been saved? Do you remember the day? I still remember it, clearly. I was on a spiritual high for three days like nothing I ever did through the rest of my life. And let me tell you what, I've done some things. I started sharing my faith the first week. I had no idea I died what I was talking about. I started faith evangelism training the night I was baptized because I said, why is no one talking about this? And they said, well, they are. I said, I'm 50 years old. I've never heard it before. Love. If we're going to be truly effective in serving Jesus by serving his body, for his glory and our good, it must be done out of love. What a better reason to serve the one who gave us his all, but through love. His steadfast love should compel us to lovingly, faithfully serve our families and community by following in the love of Christ himself. Will it be easy? Uh Uh-uh. Will it challenge you? Absolutely. Is it worth it? Most definitely. In the Narnia series, I don't know if you've read that. We've read the books and watched the movies. I love it. I like Mr. Beaver. They're talking about Aslan. 
Aslan, of course, is a, resent, re, uh, a representation of Jesus. He said, well, Aslan's a lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall rather be nervous about meeting a lion. <laughs> safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. Ooh, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You want to serve God? It's going to be messy. You want to serve God? It's not going to be safe. You want to serve God? You're going to be called to do things that make absolutely, positively no sense. Oh, man, but he is so absolutely good. You serve God out of the love he's poured into you. The love that he gives freely to all who call on the name of the Lord. I'll leave you with this final verse, John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Where's God calling you to go to love somebody today? In Acts 1.8, one of my favorite verses, it says, For the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will receive power from on high, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and the utter ends of the earth. Do you know why Samaria is thrown in there? Because they, Jews, hated the Samaritans. Maybe you've got to go to that neighbor you can't stand and tell him about Jesus. Invite him over for dinner or bring him cookies. Maybe you've got to come and give up your time, talents, and treasures to work at Mark 12 or serve someplace else. Maybe you've got to go to a brother or sister and go, we need to talk about what's going on in your life because I'm worried about your soul. I'm going to close and just ask, answer this question. Where is God asking you to serve out of love. Father, thank you for a very challenging passage. Let us not shy away from standing up for you no matter what the cost. Let our strength be brought down from heaven through the Spirit. Give us the wisdom and the guidance we need to serve you faithfully in this church, in our community, in our homes, in our places of work, where we're off doing the fun things we do, playing sports or fishing or music, it doesn't matter. Lord, pour your heart into ours that we can pour that into others, that they would come to know Christ as we do, and their salvation would be complete in the one who gave up everything. Let your word not return void this morning, Lord. Give us hope. Give us direction. We only ask that you guide so that we can go. We ask these things in the powerful and precious name of Christ our Lord. Amen. As we finish